Donnie, we're back. We're in the Chateau de Letrees. The Chateau de Trees. Chateau de Trees. Yeah, it's good to be back in the Chateau de Trees with our first Beyond Flag since, uh, man, it feels like a long time. Yeah, a long, long time ago. October 20, I think. I think it was. Coral Movement, I think it was with Jesse Prescott. Yeah. And here we are again. The pandemic's cooled down. Hopefully that continues. Mm-hmm. Vaccinations are out. Um, so we're able to interview again. Yeah, it is exciting. We got some ones on the books going forward yeah, too. Yeah, we got some books. We got this one today that I'm I've pumped I'm pumped for. I remember reaching out to this person way back in uh, yeah, geez, I think that might have been 2019, and trying to get it to line up, and then the pandemic hit, and yeah. it just wasn't possible. Yeah, wow. Yeah, it's kind of bananas. Well, who what do we got for today? Yeah, so we're going beyond flag with Colleen Cooley. Um, and typically our introductions, when we introduce people here or at the start of the episode, include statements about like their current working roles or their responsibilities. And our, I, I think our introductions tend to have a focus on achievement in the individual. Yeah. And I think we should do a little different today. Yeah, for sure. Colleen had a much different style on her approach, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so it's something that we really wanted to encourage our listeners to pay attention to and also something that we wanted to honor. Um, so yeah, with her emphasis or her approach, what you noticed was the, uh, like a take on personal history and heritage. Yeah. So she, she, yeah, she talks about all that heritage stuff for her, which she'll introduce for now. Let us just say that, uh, she's, she grew up splitting time between Chanto, Blue Gap and Flagstaff, Arizona. Um, and she, she had meaningful connections to the lands, the plants, the animals and water all around her. Mm -hmm. And it led to becoming a river guide and a consulting activist. Yeah, and currently Colleen maintains that connection to the environment through her advocacy work, advocating for the rights of the people in the natural world in this area. Yeah, yeah. She has a really powerful and important voice. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. This interview was a long time coming, so we were fortunate to share time with her. Yeah, no doubt. And so also be sure to catch the Beyond the Pandemic series orchestrated by Colleen in which the topic of incorporating indigenous voices into decisions about the land, including the Grand Canyon, are addressed. Two episodes in those series have been released with two more on the way. Yeah, so check those out. Those those will be in links below this episode in addition to some other work that Colleen has done. So make sure to check out those links. Colleen said that she would hit us up when she has her website fully developed and we'll pass that information along too. Um, for now, you can check her out on the IG. And how do you pronounce that? It's at... And I was just saying Siculio. At someone? Siculio <laughs> C- too. There you go. Yeah. With that said, let's go beyond flag with... Colleen Cooley. Welcome to Beyond Flag, a Beyond the Pines production created by with and for the people of Flagstaff building connection in the town we love. We are your hosts, Dr. Daniel J. Phillips and Cody Bayless, also known as Dr. Chinchilla Nice Nice. Thanks for tuning in as we go beyond flag, straight from the dunny of our observatory. Welcome. So we have Colleen Cooley with us. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, for sure. Um, Would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, thank you. Um, I introduced myself in my own language. Mm-hmm. 
is na deskir dent nasha a kutal e dent astonishly so um when i introduce myself to any audience um or even to my dent relatives uh that's how we introduce ourselves in our own language to make relationship with each other and also to let other people know about where how we identify ourselves um as Navajo people through our clans and uh that's how I identify myself as a Navajo woman so what i mentioned is i am towering house born for the reed people clan and my maternal grandfather is water flows together and my paternal grandfather's clan is many goats clan and i talked about where i come from from my, both my mother's side and my father's side and that is from shanto and also from blue gap arizona all right and so for our listeners um yeah first off thank you so much for joining us um for our listeners would you be willing to share where is shanto and where is blue gap yes shanto is located in the northern part of arizona um I think a lot of people maybe have traveled on Highway 160 between Cayenta uh, and Tuba City, so it's about midway through there, um, and you'll find Shanto in that region. Blue Gap, not many people are familiar with it. Uh, I don't think a lot of uh, tourists or people drive through there, so the closest big town, I would say, is Chinle, Arizona, so I think some people have gone to Canyon de Chez National Monument, so it would be... Uh, probably maybe an hour, which direction would it be? <laughs> <laughs> kind of south, uh, west of Chinle. So, yep. so now you know. Yep. There you go. <laughs> and so you spent your time growing up in Shanto? Uh, mostly, yes. And so that's on my father's side. Um, they decided to move there. Um, usually it's the other way around with uh, Navajo culture. Uh, is you move to where your mother's side is from. Um, but <laughs> I guess my, my parents decided to do it the other way, and that's okay. Um, so I grew up in Shanto and um, also here in Flagstaff as well. So kind of a split between both places. Okay. And can you share with us what that was like, I guess, split in time between Shanto and Flagstaff? Yeah, what I tell a lot of people is probably about half of my life I spent growing up in the dormitories, actually, mm. um, because my parents and a lot of families on the Navajo Nation still do not have access to running water and also electricity. Um, but it has progressed over, I think, the last few years more so. And so I think for my parents, and maybe just to make it a little easier for them, uh, my siblings and I grew up in the in the dormitories, um, and it was very structured. So I think that translates into kind of how I um, live my life today, because it was you wake up at six a.m. They make they made us run around the campus early in the morning. And we did our chores, we got dressed, we had breakfast, and then we had school. And then after school, we had, you know, homework time. And then after that, it was bedtime. And it was just like a routine every day. 
And then after that, I went, uh, my parents thought that coming to Flagstaff, there was a better education for us uh, here in Flagstaff at the high school. And also uh, they have a dormitory available for uh, students that come off uh, the Navajo, Hopi, and Havasupai reservations. Um, and so we can just walk to school as well from there. Same thing. It was kind of structured in that way. We didn't have to run in the morning though, (laughs) (laughs) but we still had the chores and we still had to do, um, you know, homework time. And, um, and also I think, you know, for some people and for me, I also grew up uh, playing sports. So basketball and volleyball. Okay. Um, And were you at Flagstaff High then? Yes, I yes. was. Okay, yeah. so go Eagles, huh? Yes. <laughs> yeah, and then you were staying in the, Ken, is it Kinlani? Kinlani uh, Dormitory, yes. Yeah, okay, mm-hmm. yeah, that's right down the road. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Did you miss running? No, actually, so <laughs> that's funny because my running journey didn't start until about five years ago. Oh. I didn't like running when I was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so, yeah, that's what I was curious about. You, you um, said they incorporated a lot of structure and you said some of that still creeps into your life. So how does that structure that you had early on in those experiences, how does it creep into your life currently? Um, I think just kind of the way I move through the world or it might be portrayed onto my niece and nephew, um, you know, t- talking to them about the importance of, of, you know, doing your chores and then you can, mm-hmm. you know, play later or something, you know, that has to be incorporated in there um, and that they can do it on their own, you know, um, even at a young age, you know washing their own dishes, for example. I mean, we didn't have to do that in the dorms. Um, Or, you know, I think I learned when I was, I don't know, 10, 11, to do my own laundry, you know, um, those kind of things. And I think just getting up early, I mean, I didn't, I wasn't really a morning person, I think, you know, during, um, after high school, because I kind of had the freedom after high school, being in college, uh, and I was on my own time. But I think it was more in the last five years or so. And I started, you know, I think I was um, like this morning, I woke up with the sun or the light at 5 a.m. this morning. Mm-hmm. And I just like to get an early morning start. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great. Yeah. I was curious with that. It was just like, what is, I follow, we follow you on Instagram, right? And I see you traveling around a lot, camping mm-hmm. a lot. It looked like you're on the river recently. Mm-hmm. Um, what does your life currently look like? Um, I tell people that I live an unconventional life, so meaning that I don't, usually I don't stay in one place for too long. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and part of the year I live, you know, sometimes in my car, you know, traveling to different places, seeing different places, and keeping it pretty simple. So, uh, for example, this past weekend I was down in... Paid Springs area along Oak Creek and camping out, you know, with my sisters and uh, my sister's kids and their friends. And um, this week, you know, for example, I'm going to be headed back up to Shanto and then the following week I'm going to go on a river trip. So it's kind of dependent week by week. (laughs) It kind of varies, but... I think during the the pandemic, you know, within the last year, I did stay home a lot. You know, mm-hmm. my goal was to definitely move back to Shanto after years of 
you know, being in college, going to school, working various jobs. And I didn't, you know, I, most of my jobs right now, or the things that I do, um, definitely are advocating for protection of land, air and water, and also advocating for indigenous voices and perspectives in various spaces. So, um, that could be working for non-for-profit organizations, um, also working uh, with the climate change program at ITEP at NAU, uh, the Institute for Tribal Environmental Professionals. I'm just interested, I think, in a lot of different um, things and topics um, and what you know different organizations do. So I haven't really s- stuck with one entity. <laughs> What entities are you currently working with? So are you still working with ITEP and then what others if so? Yes, currently still working with ITEP, just working part-time with them. Uh, As I mentioned, they have a tribes and climate change program, so I do a lot of research for them. I am actually on a path of creating my own consulting business. So over the years, I've, you know... um, enhance my skills around facilitation of different events and meetings, uh, community meetings, for example, or board meetings, strategic meetings. And so I think last year during the pandemic, maybe for many people as well, uh, I think it really sparked people's creativities. Um, and so, uh, you know, it was a vision for a long time for me to start something on my own around event planning, for example, um, but so currently I have contracts with the Grand Canyon Trust, uh, just signed one with Sierra Club to put together a Native American, uh, land rights gathering, uh, later in the fall and another one with, um, I forget what the foundation was, but, uh, it's basically to facilitate film screenings for the film inhabitants. So that film is a documentary film that follows five indigenous tribes and they kind of speak to their culture and their food sovereignty um, and just their traditional way of life um, and sharing that with the world. Yeah, and you're organizing screenings for that? I've Mm -hmm. seen the trailer, but haven't been able to see it yet. Yes, definitely. So right now they're only wanting to provide it for tribal entities, universities, mm-hmm. um, organizations, or communities um, for free. And I'll be organizing those screenings. And then they want to host uh, five different events that feature the some of the people in the film. And then we'll do like panel discussions with them throughout um, starting this month through mm-hmm. November. So. Mm-hmm. Well, congrats yeah, on starting you. your consulting stuff. That's stuff you were organically doing. So one way I became familiar with you or more familiar with you is um, watching two live streaming events you hosted beyond the pandemic one and two. Um, and it seemed like you organized or emceed that. Did, mm-hmm. Were you the impetus behind getting those together? Yeah, pretty much. Actually, it started from this notice that went out from the Havasupai tribe. Mm. And this was uh, actually about a year ago this month. Uh, So June of 2020. And they put out a notice asking, uh, you know, the boaters passing along uh, Havasu Creek uh, 
mm-hmm. uh, on the, along the Colorado River. They asked you know nobody to hike up or stop there, um, and I think a lot of the uh, private boaters maybe or even commercial trips. I mean, there was not many trips running at the time, um, but I think there was sort of some uh, rogue. Yeah, so there was, you know, there was some, what is the word <laughs> that I'm trying to look for? Um, I don't know, it just created some some conversation or discussion on Facebook, actually. <laughs> so a friend of mine and I, we decided, and I, we talked about it just on the phone, and I said, well, we should maybe put together something uh, to bring awareness to why this notice is out, maybe and try to invite somebody from Havasupai as well. Uh, so with my friend's help, Serena Riggs, she's with Grand Canyon Trust, um, a really good friend of mine. And so we talked it through and thought about who to invite, and we wanted to do all Indigenous women panel mm-hmm. uh, and just talk more, not just about the notice itself, but just talk about Indigenous land rights and sovereignty and uh, respecting that notice, you know, even though, you know, there were some people saying on Facebook about, you know, the boundary of the Havasupai Nation doesn't start until I think you hike in three miles in on Havasu Creek. Um, but it was beyond beyond that for, for us as Indigenous peoples. It's like our original homelands are all of the Grand Canyon um, before the Park Service boundaries, before the state boundaries, uh, were put in place. And so we wanted to have a conversation and provide that awareness to other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was thinking with that is like, there's all these artificial boundaries that have been created. And then mm-hmm. there's this, then we have to live by this idea. And it seems that like, just like you're saying that there's these fake, these fake lines. And then if people in Supai are saying, please don't hike up the creek, that needs to be respected. Mm-hmm. Is it? And so we're connecting that to beyond the pandemic, the part one was about indigenous sovereignty. Mm-hmm. I was wondering if we could, if you'd be willing to speak to that a little bit, just what you covered in, like in a nutshell in that first mm-hmm. one. Yeah. So as I mentioned, uh, my friend Serena and I, we did this on our own time and because we believe in our voices and our perspectives and we invited um, four other indigenous women to be on that panel um, unfortunately we couldn't get somebody from Havasupai, um, but we had, uh, my sister Nikki, um, and actually Amy Martin. I know she's not indigenous, but she's, you know, an advocate, uh, for the river as well and a scientist. And then we also had Lynn Hamilton with the Grand Canyon River Guides. We wanted to get her perspective as well. We had Jewel Honga. She's a Wallapai and Diné, and we had um, Serana, and then we had Rachel running. I think she's also known, uh, in this community as well. So we wanted to get, you know, various perspectives, uh, from the women themselves, you know, and their experience and connection to the Grand Canyon. And also, also for me as a facilitator, and even before the pandemic, you know, for panel discussions, I was trying to be more engaging with the audience. Mm -hmm. Um, because for me, I think just having a question and answer with the panelists without engagement with the audience is boring to me. (laughs) (laughs) So that's one of the reasons why I got into it as well is like, what, what does the audience think? I want to engage them. They're listening. They're here, you know, taking time out of their day as well. 
um, or even at a conference, they're taking time away from maybe another workshop they want to attend. So I want to engage them. So, so that's what I did. I had some flexibility via Zoom <laughs> and, you know, ask questions um, to, to the audience, you know, about where they're coming from as well. Uh, because we can't see them, you know, if anybody is familiar with the Zoom webinar, you have some restrictions there, you can't see the other people tuning in, really, so, uh, but yeah, the conversation was, you know, the woman's connection to the Grand Canyon, their experience, um, and their thoughts around, you know, indigenous sovereignty, and what that means, what that looks like, um, and the boundaries um, or artificial boundaries, as you mentioned, uh, just speaking to that, there's a history there that's not told, uh, in a lot of spaces, you know, even for visitors visiting the Grand Canyon National Park, you know, that's not really in the pamphlets or, you know, at the visitor center, I'm not, I, I can't quite remember what's, you know, available to them, but, that's what we wanted to bring to light. You know, John Wesley Powell is not the first person that explored this canyon, right? So there's a lot, there's a history there that's, you know, it's there, um, but it's not, you know, um, available for everybody to be aware of. So we wanted to bring some of that to, to the conversation as well. Yeah, it doesn't get disseminated as much. This was so great. There, there, um, I forget the full name, but there was the intertribal... Um, communication group or the intertribal intertribal centennial conversations I was a part of as well yeah mm-hmm. and so that they actually talked about phases of things you could do and phase one was like basically just providing <laughs> more education mm-hmm. and changing names which seems like like a easy <laughs> <laughs> like an easy thing to do mm-hmm. just to provide that connection to right. the history and heritage right. to that mm-hmm. place yeah, one of the names was Indian Gardens, right? Mm-hmm. Changing that to Havasupai yes. Gardens, I believe. Yes, yeah. yeah. So that was from Havasupai uh, community members themselves. They said mm-hmm. they want to change that name. Yeah. And so hopefully through more conversations um, and building and maintaining those relationships with the Park Service, yeah. hopefully that will change as well. Is it, and is that, I guess I wonder from a process standpoint, because I hear Dan saying this, like, it seems like a stroke of a pen could change this in right. a lot of ways. Is it the park service that kind of owns that, I guess? Or is it the park service that would right now deem that this is referred to as Indian Gardens? I believe so. They're the yeah. ones that maintain the trails and the signs within the canyon. Right. So I think it would be up to them. They're open to it. It's just, I don't, we don't really know exactly which, under which department within the park service, um, or within the Grand Canyon National Park, um, which, which route we need to, you know, yeah. go, there's like com- more conversations and more, yeah. you know, follow up around that for it to happen. Through yeah. Like bureaucracy. Yeah. yeah. A lot of bureaucratic yes. red, red tape you got <laughs> through there. Yeah. yeah. So best sorry. wishes. Uh, Indian gardens is one of the ones. So Supai is, um, requested to change the name to have a Supai gardens. Uh, not, not directly, but I think through the, this intertribal centennial conversations group, um, they have recommended that it should be changed. Um, but I don't know if there's an actual direct notice to, to the park service to change it that I'm aware of. Were there some other, um, places or other trail names, anything like that, that were recommended or kind of on the docket? 
Yes, I believe so. Um, I know the conversations are continuing. It's just been hard during, you know, the the pandemic within the last year or so. Um, I think there was more movement when we were able to meet in person with the, you know, the tribal um, community members and leaders. Um, I think there was more momentum. It's, you know, we've suffered, you know, a lot of families have suffered loss um, and challenges through the pandemic. So that We've been just having phone conversations uh, with the, the the people that were part of that group. Okay. Mm-hmm. So looking to pick up momentum mm-hmm. again going yes. forward. Yeah. So yeah. hopefully an in-person meeting maybe later this year or next year. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Very cool. Yeah. That so so that you organize those beyond the pandemic live streaming. You know, you talked about one of your efforts in approaching it and emceeing it was to connect to people, which I think is just inherent in what you do. Mm -hmm. You talked about trying to get the engagement of those who are watching. I saw that when you would ask questions Mm -hmm. and do the polls and then tell people what, what the responses of others were. It seems like connection and dialogue is such an integral part. I think that was one of the other phases is that in order to incorporate more sovereignty, it would be just providing um, councils or ways that tribes could actually just provide input for what to do with the land or how to view the land. Is that right? Are you referring to the intertribal centennial? Yeah, so that kind of stemmed, I think, from previous work that you know, the Grand Canyon Trust has done as well, um, is this group that formed based on the centennial, actually, of the Grand Canyon National Park um, in 2019. So we brought together the, you know, the tribal community members, some of the leaders, um, and it kind of just happened also organically. You know, they're the ones that came up with a vision statement of how they want to see the Grand Canyon, how it should be protected, you know, their values and connection to it. Um, that wasn't, you know, coming, that was not coming from Grand Canyon Trust or myself saying you need to have a vision for what you see for the future. Um, it was, it just kind of happened organically and it was beautiful when it happened. Um, and I facilitated that process and, um, and then from that came, you know, these different goals, and then also the three, um, I think you're talking about them as phases, there's like three pillars that they want to focus on is education, uh, economics, um, and stewardship. So those are the three things that they uh, want to focus on. And based on that, you know, they, they, you know, they want to see acknowledgement of the history, um, not to dwell on it, but just to have visitors, uh, Grand Canyon National Park, different entities acknowledge there's a history there, um, both good and bad that happened. And so then moving from there, how do we improve our relationships, you know, and how do we collaborate uh, to bring more awareness to, you know, our own, excuse me, our perspectives and the way we value the Grand Canyon Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and through your eyes how is that accomplished like if we were to move in that direction 
Um, I think for me, what's important and what I've learned also through my work is maintaining relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've, I think indigenous communities have suffered this, you know, in the past is there's different institutions or different research groups that come into a community, take what they need for research and don't follow up with the information that they have analyzed or that they have published. Um, So for me, it's important to, in any of the initiatives that I am part of, is to maintain that relationship with those people um, as much as I can. So I think that's what the intertribal Centennial Conversations is doing as well, is we're continuing the conversations. Um, but again, we're, we're more, we like to meet in person and see each other and joke around with each other and, um, you know, see how each other is doing, uh, because we're coming from various, um, we're coming from different places, you know, within the Southwest. And so I think we're more, um, and we see each other, I think as family and, you know, as um yeah so i think i kind of lost my train of thought of <laughs> what your question was <laughs> <It's okay. laughs> how is that accomplished you were saying yeah, yeah. just wondering yeah and you're yeah. saying through relationship is really i think thing. through the relationship and again i think um just from both sides you know from the intertribal centennial conversations group side and also maintaining the relationship with national park service um, and how can we collaborate? How can we, for example, I think they wanted to host a, what is it, an, an economic summit last year, but of course it was canceled. So I think they're going to try to come back to that. Um, and maybe they'll do that at the, the Grand Canyon. Um, but again, it's like we need all parties involved. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the way, way to move forward. Okay. Yeah, so relationship you're saying mm-hmm. you're saying education, economics, and stewardship, stewardship. Mm-hmm. are those three things. Yeah, mm-hmm. the economics piece sounds really important. Yeah, I, would, I guess I would wonder more about that too. It's important, but can be tricky yeah. uh, because I think some communities and people see economy or what they call maybe ecotourism or tourism mm-hmm. um, building on that, but also being sustainable uh, around that because for example the confluence right say the confluence of the the little colorado river and the colorado river um there was the proposed tramway right that's not sustainable that's not what the people value as something that will sustain them because maybe it will but you know to destroy a beautiful place to do that is not um, what they value or what we value. And so that's where I'm saying it can be tricky. I think there are some conversations or discussion around how to do that. Um, and this group is talking about that. And I'm sure there's other communities um, that are talking about it as well on you know, Navajo Nation or Hopi Nation or Zuni um, because I don't know, it's, it's, it's kind of tricky. 
Yeah. Well, to you mentioned that, yeah. like the sustainability piece of that is so important. The mm-hmm. tram, like thinking of that tram scene, that proposed development was staggering. Mm-hmm. I guess I'd wonder what it'd be like for you to see that proposed development. It would be devastating. Yeah. I mean, I've been to the Confluence Riverside and there were, you know, even that there's a lot of people that do stop there, commercial trips and private trips that stop there. So if you can imagine 10 times the amount of people visiting that area, having access to that area, it's, it's never going to be the same and you can't, you can't reverse that if you have so many people. Yes, I believe that people should see it. Um, but there are also a lot of other special places that, you know, I would like to see, but I won't ever see. Um, so it's just kind of balancing um, how to take care of the land, but also, um, be, but also be sustainable about it or be careful about it as well. Yeah. This is, this is like what you and I have been talking about a lot recently with that donut economics, right? Like as, as long as growth is pursued just for the sake of growth, it's going to not be sustainable. Mm-hmm. There has to be an outside and an inside like a donut, like allow for growth or people to see it to some extent. And then, yeah, Mm -hmm. you got to cut it off in some ways to keep it what it is. Mm Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking like the earth to provide food and those kinds of things. Enough of it is used to to sustain humanity, but it doesn't go beyond this border to where we're just taking and extracting Mm -hmm. this perpetual growth model, like you're saying. Mm -hmm. In, In that same way, it seems like, the way I hear you talking about it, Colleen, is it's like the the land and the earth is more of like an entity. It's not like this how would resource, you, like a resource. resource. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. That's the way. And, you know, going back to how I introduced myself, mm-hmm. even within my clans and where I come from, that speaks to, you know, uh, my connection to the water and the land and the animals. It's part of my, it's part of who I am and mm-hmm. where I come from. Yeah. And that's what I tell people. And I think it's just built inside of us as indigenous people of caring for the land. Yeah. Uh, we might've, you know, been colonized or influenced by different, um, institutions or different, um, ways that we grew up. Um, so I think I'm not going to speak for all indigenous people. I'm not going to speak for all Navajo people, but this is the way I was taught and the way I was brought up. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's why I go back to trying to live, um, the simple, the simple life, which is basically just use as less resources as I can or less. Um, I mean, I'm still, you know, adding to that by having, an iPhone or a car, you know, that's, you know, that there's a lot of resources that were taken to, to build that or to make that manufacture, you know, what I, some of these things that I have. Um, but yeah, I think that we don't see it. Yeah. We don't see it as a resource, you know, it's more living beings, you know, there are relatives. And so we have to take care of them as well. Yeah. 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 You mentioned your introduction. Uh, Cody and I were talking about this. Um, it's so great to hear 
when you introduce yourself or others that introduce themselves by talking about their family heritage in their introduction, because they're talking essentially about where they come from mm-hmm. and where their connection lies that influences their view of relating to you in that moment versus like us, <laughs> like Cody and I were joking about like, yeah, if we introduce ourselves, we're like, ah, oh, I'm Dan. I work as a counselor. Um, it's like this status of what I do and what I produce rather than like where I'm from and what my heritage is. Right. Um, yeah. Like accolades and achievements. Like I did my schooling here. I have this degree and (laughs) I work at this place for, this is my specialty. It's all very individual. I promise I'm worth listening to. Yeah. (laughs) Please please believe me. Yeah. 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 Rarely would it be like, Oh yeah. My mom's name is Joyce and she comes from here. And then our heritage goes back to Germany and England or it's my dad and that kind of thing. It's just a very, and one oh. thing I love about that too, um, in hearing you introduce yourself, Colleen, is that you're speaking to how it like relates and how it connects um, to family, to land, and those connections are evident in that. Um, it's something we just miss out on, I feel like. And I, <laughs> this doesn't make me an expert by any means, but I was able to um, go to a lot of like tribal council meetings and uh, spend a lot of time at Tuba City Hospital. And all the meetings, they would never start on time. Mm-hmm. I love that. Uh, that <laughs> yeah. works really well for me. And they would all start yeah, yeah. with um, everyone introduce themselves. Mm-hmm. And it was like a third of the meeting was in introductions and it just mm-hmm. felt so connected and it felt so different than like a, a, a meeting with a bunch of white guys. Yeah. yeah. yeah how those types of meetings. Yeah, can get. Feel. Everyone's yeah. just trying to throw out their status. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's funny when you both mentioned that um, the way you would introduce yourself. So if you meet my father, (laughs) he will ask you your, you know, your name and where you're from. And then he'll kind of, you know, think about it and say, Oh, where does, you know, that last name come from? Or he'll pick at where, really where you're from and your heritage. Um, So I think even, you know, our, if you meet some of our people, I think they'll start, they'll do that. Or, you know, say, oh, you're younger than me, so I'm going to call you my son. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, where was I going with that? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think for some people, you know, when I introduce myself as well, I also tell people, like, you have you have clans as well. You know, it's, you know, where's your mom's side come from, your father's side come from? Um, and there's that lineage that you carry with you as well. Mm-hmm. But I don't think a lot of people think about that as well or try to understand that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think for me, it, it's always something that I do wherever I travel or whoever I talk to yeah. um, because it also helps me remember where I come from, yeah. connect back to that. Oh, I, I think it's great. Like, um, I think it speaks to heritage rather than like what I produce as an individual, which I think is just framed right. in so much of our economy and, yeah. and way of, uh, Western thinking. Um, yeah, it's, it's like, where are you from rather than what have you come to produce? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And you carry that with you is kind of what I hear you describing as well. Yes. Yeah. Everywhere you go. Yeah, mm-hmm. Definitely. Which kind of brings me to something. I don't know that I made this connection until you're introducing yourself, honestly, is the film Water Flows Together. You said your maternal mm-hmm. clan is Water Flows Together. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Is that yep. Was that intentional, I'm assuming? Yes, actually. the 
when the filmmakers and I were communicating about what to title the film, I think we kind of recommended, we were going back and forth a little bit. And actually one of them said, oh, what about water flows together or some, something around those lines? And so then I, you know, I think my older sister, Nikki, her and I, I always, you know, um, like to get feedback from her about some of these things. Um, or sometimes I'll get feedback from her with my resume or cover letter, you know, she's always been there for me, um, in a number of ways growing up. So I talked to her and I said, Oh, what about, you know, this title? And she said, yeah, I think that will honor our maternal grandfather's side. And that just clicked. And I was like, okay, I think that really makes (laughs) sense to me. Um, and just that connection to, to the water, um, not just for that reason, but just in general, you know, you'll hear the phrase water is life. Um, and we all come from water as humans. We all need it to survive. And it just, it just made sense to me. So I said, okay, let's, let's call it that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And we'll, we'll include that in the link. Um, if you're okay with that, um, the link for that video in the description. So everyone should check that out. Um, that's an incredible film. You, you, your sister was, I think, the first uh, native female river guide, and you're one of the first as well. Is that right? Yes, she was the first Diné uh, woman uh, in the in the canyon to mm-hmm. be licensed in the in the in the Grand Canyon. So, and I think I was one of the first. Uh, on the San Juan River in Utah. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm sure, you know, we're talking about just uh, becoming licensed, not the first ones that, you know, um, have flowed down, down the river. The river. Yeah. So there's many that have come before us, and we definitely acknowledge that mm-hmm. um, as well. So, mm-hmm. yes. Yeah. Very cool. In that film, um, I think the phrase, something to this effect gets used, and it really stood out to me, was that, like, the land is not a playground something like that. I was wondering if you could speak to that a little bit. It seems to connect a little bit to the first, um, the indigenous sovereignty thing as well mm-hmm. that we were talking about earlier. Yeah. I think that, you know, I think both my sister and I have mentioned that um, in various interviews. Um, and for us, I think that means not viewing it as a place where you can um, just play and, you know, how would you say? So if you if you go into an actual playground, you're just there to play, then you leave, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you might leave some trash behind or, you know, kind of uh, distort the landscape a little bit. Uh, so I think for us and what we refer to that as is, you know, it's a special place. It has, uh, it has its own teachings um, and stories behind it not just for us as Diné people, but also for other indigenous peoples that have lived through or have migrated through, you know, the Grand Canyon, for example, or the all the many communities that have um, um, lived there or survived there. And so, for example, going back to the confluence in the tramway, that could be seen as just, you know, having easy access to um, and it's kind of like like building a, a playground um, into a really special place. And so we, that's, we, we don't want to see that. 
Um, and again, I, you know, we speak only from our own experience and what we were taught. Um, I know there's others that view some of these outdoor spaces as a place to, to play or, you know, to train uh, for races or those kind of things. Um, and I think it's when I'm outside, for me, it's, you know, stopping to you know, smell the flowers or see what kind of critters are nearby. You know, even when I'm running, I can hear the lizards, you know, (laughs) kind of scramble through the bushes or something, um, that there's life there. I don't think some people realize that, you know, there's so much life around, um, these places along the trails. Um, and we're not the only ones, you know, moving through the world that are alive. Right. And I think we, we forget that because we're just always inside a box between four walls and we're building more boxes around us and uh, more concrete around us. So we're pushing away those lizards and other um, living beings or destroying the trees to create a building or something or roads. And so we're pushing those things out. And so And I've seen this as like some people during the pandemic, you know, some of those wildlife were coming back into the communities, um, people's backyards, and you could hear the birds or there was images of uh, some waterways that were clearing up um, or the sky was clearing up. And it was like some people were freaking out that there was, (laughs) um, I think, a mountain lion or something in their backyard. It's like, this is their home. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so um, I think a lot of people tend to forget that. Yeah, yeah. I almost think of it in terms of extractive economics again, like uh, recreation is like, I'm just going to extract fun from this or pleasure mm-hmm. um, and without considering any sort of connection or relationship to the land and honoring or respecting what was already there. And like you were saying, lessons and teachings that are kind of baked into the land. Mm-hmm. Um Again, yeah, it just seems like it's easy to look at it. Like, how do I how do I take fun from this place mm-hmm. and then sort of leave it behind and go? Right, right. Yeah, which it becomes a little ambiguous, but it's like this qualitative difference mentally you're describing, or not even just mentally, but just um, essentially what you're describing is some of, some of the like you can go recreate in these places, but the way that you think about it maybe is the qualitative difference right. or just the respect to while you're doing it, realize the connection you have to everything going on around you, mm-hmm. the ecosystem and everything around you. Right. So it's like this qualitative difference. Is that right? Or I think so. I think so. So I think, for example, I would see maybe Snowball, for example. Mm-hmm. I think I would see that more as somewhere where people would go to play play on the snow, you know, play with their skis and snowboards. Um, and they'll do it maybe every other weekend or every weekend when they can, when there's actually snow. Um, and I know they do make snow up there now. Um, but you know, for some of us, we see it differently. It's not there. We're not going there to play. Um, we're going there to provide our offerings for example uh to the mountain it's sacred to us one of our sacred mountains as Diné people uh so i think in that way we see it 
differently or have a different connection to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I'm not speaking <laughs> for all indigenous people or all mm-hmm. Diné people because mm-hmm. there are some of our own people that go up there to go ski or snowboard and that's okay. Um, so everybody is coming from different backgrounds and spaces um, or different experiences as well. It seems like an awareness of that connection really informs how you approach it. And like you're saying, you don't want to speak for all folks who are who are indigenous. I guess I would wonder your personal perspective on Snowball or what's best for the place or for the land up there, or if you could speak to your connection even with the mountain. Uh, I didn't know about Snowball until there was the... I think the Save the Peaks um, initiative that was happening, I don't know, 10 years or so ago. And, you know, our teaching, my teaching and my family is, you know, the Dok O'Aslid is, you know, one of the sacred mountains. And carrying those stories and teachings with me and even myself, and for some people actually, uh, we're told not to hike up there or go up there unless we have a purpose. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for me, it's finding a balance with that too and other places that I go. Um, you know, my mother always instills in me to carry my corn pollen with me wherever I'm traveling or to offer it before I hike up, you know, a mountain because a lot of them are sacred. And so even though I don't, you know, necessarily am gathering medicine um, but for me I think it's just reconnecting back to the mountains so I have hiked up to the top of Humphreys mm-hmm. a few times and I always carry my you know corn pollen with me to offer it um, and to provide my intentions um, and speak to it and I think for for I don't know what the the, the people value uh, for the ski resort, um, but I know it's just to make money yeah. um, off of people. And so because we're such in a, you know, Arizona is such a dry state, for example. Uh, we're in a drought right now. Uh, we didn't receive much snow. We haven't received much rip moisture, you know, within the last year or so. Um, and so... I think it's more just about making money off of, you know, tourists. <laughs> yeah. um, and so they, that's why I think that's why they want to make snow to last, make the season last longer um, and to expand it, to make it even bigger um, and not really consider how that's going to damage the, the, the mountain itself. They're not seeing it as a living being or something that's... Um, that needs also protection or um, being taken care of in a different way. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking with that, it's just, it, again, it seems like the economy or the money drives the decision-making. And so you see massive development going up there and tying that with indigenous sovereignty again, how much input do, do folks from the surrounding tribes have on what happens up there related to something like snowball? Not much. I know that Navajo and Hopi um, are the main ones that have advocated or tried to uh, do protests and stop the expansion as well. 
Um, but unfortunately, uh, the courts are continuing to side with the Forest Service side or the Snowball side um, for whatever reason. Um, I think there are 13 plus tribes uh, in the region that also have a connection or see the mountain as culturally significant or sacred. They have their own, whether they, you know, whether their reservation boundaries are within this region or not, they have their own connection and stories to that mountain. Um, but the courts don't see that, yeah. you know, even under the, what is it? The religious freedom act, you know, um, they still don't see that. Right. Unfortunately. Yeah, I was gonna say, it just seemed like the tribes got steamrolled in court. Yeah. 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 Oh, and then again, I was just thinking with indigenous sovereignty, like the way that going forward, it probably ought to look, should look is that like that land ought to be managed by folks who were here originally. Yeah. And manage don't quite like that term, but some people use it. Um, I think more, yes. Um, taking care of that place um but yeah i think what has stemmed i think from the movements that were happening last year during the pandemic is black lives matter or indigenous lives matter or acknowledge you know doing land acknowledgement which is great you know more people and individuals and institutions are doing it but for me, I started thinking, yeah, that's great, but what about going beyond the land acknowledgement now? If you can do more than just say, oh, this is the ancestral homelands of you know this tribe and this tribe and this tribe, for example. It's like, okay, what do you know about those tribes or those indigenous communities that you're living in? Um, do you know the history of why they were forced out? Or do you know about... Um, what traditional foods that they still value or that they grow, or do you know the issues that they have been faced with, how they're addressing it? Do you know any indigenous businesses or um, organizations that you can, you know, learn more about those people rather than just saying this is the ancestral homeland of the Diné people, right? Yeah. Which is which is great. That's I think a first step. Um, so I think what we're, you know, even in the Flagstaff community, you know, there's a lot of history that's not told. A lot of the people that come here don't know about it. Um, and so I think it's just going beyond that, taking it a step further. Yeah. So if it just kind of stops at land acknowledgement, yeah, it's not really sufficient. Mm -hmm. it, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, it's all this qualitative thing, right? Even when you... Um, pull back from the word manage, right? It, it's not like management of, because again, it's referring to this thing that's separate from you that you have ownership and dominion over. Mm -hmm. And it's not that. It's mm -hmm. actually, instead of manage it, like indigenous people having management of, of a space like that, it's mm -hmm. actually just be part of the dialogue. Mm -hmm. Like everyone have a dialogue for what's yeah. sustainable and not sustainable mm -hmm. for this thing that's part of all of us because we're all here. Yeah, I think it goes back to how our ancestors lived a long time ago. Mm -hmm. It's just that, that the way they live. But now there's terms being put on it. For example, permaculture, 
um, is a technique that was utilized by our ancestors a long time ago or solar passive homes. We were already doing that. You see it all along the San Juan River with the river house uh, structure and how they utilize an alcove and there's a lot of sun in the winter south facing. Um, and it's like, well, yeah, they, they knew what they're doing. <laughs> they were very intelligent and aligning themselves using the, the sun and the moon and the stars and the, you know, the water and the landscape around them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was thinking too, I guess I was wondering, you know, we listened to, it was an old NPR podcast, right? I, think, I believe it was with a woman from Minnesota and she was talking about water as having, being its own entity. Do you remember this? And yeah. like having, apparently Hobby Lobby is a an entity, like it's a corporation and okay. the, it's seen <laughs> as an entity, mm-hmm. which blows my mind that water or the mountain or something like that mm-hmm. wouldn't have that same thing. Mm-hmm. I guess I was wondering if that in, in some sort of way is a bit of a solution or a, a, a way to go forward would be assigning a status to land, to water, in which it is its own thing. Actually, I don't know if this is what you're referring to, but there are there's the Klamath River, I believe, and also there's uh, several rivers in New Zealand, and also wild rice um, being uh, designated as uh, a personhood. Entity. Yes. An entity or personhood, so that they have their own rights because they can't speak mm-hmm. for themselves. And so if it's taken to court, they have their own rights. Is that yeah. what you're referring to? Yeah, yes. It is. yes. And, she, and she's, she's based in Louisiana oh, and okay. she's a lawyer trying to oh, okay. get rights, water yeah. rights for mm-hmm. entities like mm-hmm. that. Same thing. Yeah. Those yep. are neighbors, right? Minnesota and Louisiana. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Same in, in terms of they're both on same the same planet, continent. Right? <laughs> yeah. Sheesh. Yeah. They're all connected. Yeah. They're all connected. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Things like that could be really helpful. It almost makes you cringe listening to that, though, because I think, well, then we're taking these things and we're trying to put them in our boundaries again. Yeah. Like we're giving them lawyers the way that we have lawyers <laughs> right. for each other. We're creating right. those arbitrary boundaries that you referenced at the start. It feels like we're pulling them into those arbitrary boundaries rather than meeting them outside of those boundaries to me, yeah. like listening to that, yeah. which I don't know a solution for because, yeah, people seem willing to, <laughs> to treat the world as a resource. So you got to respect that's a reality. Yeah. Um, but it's tough to listen to because it, it's doing the opposite of qualitatively what you're really talking about. Mm-hmm. The realization that we're all connected, everything's interconnected. And respecting that and all these arbitrary categories and boundaries and boxes that we place, we fabricated those. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. It kind of pulls it into the system opposed opposed to freeing it. Yeah. Which yeah. I which yeah. I wish I had a suggestion for how <laughs> how to advocate yeah. for them without doing that, but I don't. Yeah, yeah. I know it's it's unfortunate that it has come to that, but I think that will I think for some of these um, places or riverways or foods, I think they need to be protected in some way. And mm-hmm. if it's not being protected under certain uh, laws or indigenous sovereignty, then maybe that's that's the way we're moving. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's what you have to respect. Yeah. That's, the, yeah. that's the way it is. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Powerful stuff. Um, 
Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for spending time with us. Um, you know, something that Cody and I have asked others when they come on is just to define um, how they relate to to Flagstaff or to the surrounding area. So in a couple of sentences, how would you define or describe what this area is to you? Well, as I mentioned earlier, I first came and spent a lot of time here in Flagstaff in high school. And for me, I didn't really have a direct connection at the time. I think I was just here for school. And I think when I got older, I realized this is part of our homelands. We're within our sacred mountains. Those are our boundaries as Diné people uh, within the four sacred mountains. But for some, there's six, there's eight, depending on who you ask. Um, and so those are the boundaries that I was taught to, to come back to um, or to connect to. And so I think it wasn't until I got older that, you know, I had more of a connection to this place. And I always come back here. You know, I've gone off and lived in Colorado. Um, I've, you know, been a guide in Utah. I spent a lot of time here for in high school and college and for work as well. Um, and I always come back here because I still have family and friends here. Um, so that's my connection to it. Um, but even Flagstaff is growing, you know, because we have the university and, um, I don't really like to see all the development happening. Um, and it seems like it keeps getting more busy every time I come back, but I really appreciate the, the community. Um, I know we lost, um, some people in a bike accident. Uh, recently. Um, and that was really, I think, sad for some of our, the community members here. But from that, it really created this community is there for each other in that way. You know, I think there's a lot of businesses and individuals that stepped up to sort of be there in support of each other. And so that's what I like about Flagstaff. You know, we're, we, we are growing, but we're also still a small community and we can be there for each other. So I really appreciate that. And just like access to um, the trails and um, access to, you know, other places. I mean, Arizona in itself is very diverse. And so um, I think Flagstaff is kind of a central area to... to um, have access to also Shanto, where I grew up, the Grand Canyon, you know, Sedona, and other places. So yeah. I think I'll keep coming back. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And Colleen, before we wrap up, first, I, I want to say thank you so much for taking time out of your day um, to sit here with Dan and I. It's been really, it's been a pleasure to, to hear from you. Um, I, I was also wondering if people wanted to follow you um, how should, what's the best route to follow you and what you're doing if it's your consulting business or anything else? Yeah, thank you. No, I really appreciate the time. I know this was a long time coming <laughs> and, uh, let me just refer back to the beyond the pandemic. I am going to be working on a third and fourth series. Great. It's just been super busy, <laughs> yeah. you know, moving back home also to Shanto where I grew up. 
uh, trying to build, uh, hopefully build a tiny home out there for myself and eventually an earthship. So that's my long-term goal. Um, but a lot of people can, well, people can follow me on Instagram. Um, I think, I don't know if you guys want to include it in the, in the Mm -hmm. notes. Absolutely. Um, and also I'm building a website, so, uh, that will be coming hopefully by the end of summer. Uh, I was hoping to have it by the time I was interviewed for this mm-hmm. podcast, yeah. <laughs> but it's not quite ready. And well, let us know. Yeah. And we'd always put it out. You yeah. can also just Google me. You can find my email. Uh, the one that pops up is my NAU email. Okay. Um, and then other, I, I guess I have a link tree, but I don't know how you can maybe just link tree and my name as well. So I have okay. other articles and other things that I'm doing through that right now, mm-hmm. since my website is not quite ready. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, again, thank you so much for coming through. And then we'll be sure to post all those links for our listeners. Yeah, we'll have that all in the description. So make sure to check the description. Colleen, thank you so much. Oh, thank you both. I really appreciate it. All right, we did it. We did it, man. Colleen stepped out like a couple of real professionals our first uh, interview in quite a while yeah i mean rusty professionals that's like rusty is a really good description of that process and that's professional a, is a way overstatement <laughs> of what happened for us rusty i think is also an understatement <laughs> rusty's an understatement so we have a, kind of an understatement and an overstatement in both words there well, let's walk everyone through a couple of the highlights of our rusty professionalism yeah so we couldn't get the headphones to work that first one. Yeah. So, so yeah, for our listeners, we've already communicated. We moved into a new spot. <laughs> we've also upgraded our equipment because the last stuff we've uh, <laughs> basically broke it all. Yeah. <laughs> we have a uh, one out of five microphones that works. Oh, man. So we upgraded our equipment and um, <laughs> we're, we're pumped to get this going. So Colleen shows up and the headphones aren't working. Is that right? Yeah. I, which I have no idea. I was using it. I was using it literally just minutes before she showed up. That That's, reminds me of Vince, the Vince episode. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right? When like, one mic wouldn't work all yeah. of a sudden. Everything was fine, and then we showed up and walked into the room, and it didn't work because I tested those headphones earlier, and they, were, yeah. they had been working. Yeah. So we, like, the headphones weren't working. It goes to the point where I ask you for your <laughs> your iPhone headphones to see if those work. Yeah, so for our listeners, again, if you're a GoPro, something you would have seen is Dan plugging a pair of wired Apple headphones <laughs> into a quarter-inch adapter and then plug that into a mixer. Just like a real professional. Also, that didn't work. And that also didn't work. <laughs> Finally, we got kind of square just by switching jacks. I don't know what's wrong. I hope a jack one will work at some point. Yeah. Um, We'll see. So that was that was our first, that was the <laughs> faux pas. Yeah, first faux pas, just stepping into the thing. Yeah. What else was there? Uh, the, the, there was the issue taking the pictures with the phone. Oh, gosh. So then afterwards, man, Colleen is so patient. So then afterwards, all we're trying to do is take a picture. Dan and I are in this new space. It's still not really set up. <laughs> we haven't dialed in our, our processes yet. And then she has to observe two <laughs> Again, beta males, jackalopes, trying to figure out how to take a selfie in front of a wall. <laughs> oh, man. I don't you all, you, the listeners think a selfie against a wall. Well, that's easy. Right. It's not. Anything where Dan and I are trying to use our heads to make a decision is not an easy process. <laughs> so just like figuring out where to take a picture, how to take the picture, 
what furniture we need to stack on each other so that we could prop the phone up, <laughs> all of that stuff. Meanwhile, Colleen's just kind of watching us. <laughs> kind of like, I got things to do. Yeah. Um, yeah. So basically from start to end and everything in between, it's kind of like that. And Colleen, like you said, just uber patient, kind, yep. generous. Yeah. Yeah. Kind with her time, just generous and polite and cordial. So thank you so much, Colleen, for putting up with uh, with us. Yeah, and on that note too, like she showed up, man. Like she was LeBron James, right? Ugh, you and I so were like good. a like a Mark Gasol and a yeah and a <laughs> and a Schroeder. And a Schroeder. <laughs> um, she just blew blew it away, right? Like so much insight and awareness. Um, for me, the the thing I I really want us to emphasize the way that we experience these people. It's so great to meet with people in person, um, and in listening to her, I think the way that she connects to herself and others is so evident in everything that she does. So one in the content that she's sharing, but also the way that she goes about sharing it. Like when she talked about how, um, she prefers to meet with everyone in person that when they have those intertribal meetings to have discussions, she likes the dialogue to be together in person. The way she relates to others is by meeting up and linking with them in person and she really talks about this qualitative way where it's good for everyone to have input into the dialogue mm-hmm. and that doing that in person tends to be the best because there are the qualitative elements that just exist. And that's something that I experience as well. I just think it's so great to hear everyone be part of a dialogue. And if you can do that in person, there's just something deeper it feels like to me. Yeah, you know, that kind of piggybacks on when we originally, I mean, the whole pandemic, right? We were kind of saying, well, let's avoid doing the Zoom thing, is that some of our value was to sit with people and to get to hear from them directly. Yeah. And it seems that like she holds that same value in a way to where the thing that's going to be most important here is relating directly with people. And when she was talking about the intertribal, um, getting together, like as far as it fe- feeling like family. Yeah. It's the way she had, she had described it. Exactly. Um, Man, you know, and she really talked a lot about, again, just kind of going back to connection and connection to the natural world. Yeah. It's just evident <laughs> everything she she was speaking to. Yeah. Um, and I was really, I was really just like engaged when she was talking about education. She was talking about economics. She was talking about stewardship and how all of those are important to consider in making decisions about how we move through the world, basically. Yeah. And then on a very specific level, she's talking about, I love this. She referred to herself as simple, right? Like yeah. she just tries to live simply. And on her runs, she does things like takes, she stops to pay attention to a critter. Yeah. 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 I, when she was sharing that, I kept going through my mind. I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but when you're on the run, it's weird. Those, those lizards, they're teeny, but they, they make like a disproportionate sound running through the yeah. bushes. Have yeah. you ever had the experience where like, you're on a trail, you hear a lizard, and then you're sure it's like the size of a mountain lion. Yeah, you're like kind of jumping off the trail. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Like there's a mountain lion or a bobcat just two feet away from me right there. Yeah, and come then to find out. Yeah, it's a lizard. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And she's talking about like stopping her run to pay attention, pay attention to the trees. And she's talking about the sky and, um, and critters. Like, yeah, to me, it just seems like, again, her approach is completely formed by her value of connection yeah. with an ambiance um, that, that, that highlights this reverence for the, 
the thing that she's in and the way that she relates to it and it relates to her and it being like the ecosystem, the world, the plants, the animals, yeah. the ground, everything around her, the water. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just that we're all inherently connected and this, this world ecosystem is inherently connected and that when you go out and spend time in that space to be aware of that. Right. Yeah. 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 I just, I really appreciated hearing from her. Yeah. It's great. Well, why don't you take us out by shouting us out? No doubt. You can always find us on our website, uh, www.beyondflag.com. Flag spelled FLG. And then you can hit us up on the Instagrams. We've been a little bit, we're trying to pick it back up here. <laughs> but uh, beyond underscore flag. And then you can always find our fine <laughs> Twitter account. Also, beyond underscore flag. Yeah. Take care. Love you.